We're moving along in our series called Wise Living. Let me open this morning with a quote. We're talking about wisdom and religion this morning. And this morning, I'm going to take a bit of a different approach to the actual text. We're not going to be as focused on each individual instruction, but we're going to take the instruction as a whole unit of thought, and we're going to say, what does the author believe about the world? And what does the author want us to believe about God and about the world by what they're saying? Like, what assumptions do we have to make to understand the assertions and the warnings that he's giving us? So let me open with a quote. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, just as it is the spirit of a spiritless situation. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is required for their happiness. I'll say that one more time. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is required for their real happiness. Does anybody know who said that? The late, renowned, infamous Karl Marx. Karl Marx is saying that the abolition of religion as an illusion for man's happiness has to go in order for man to become truly happy. And so this morning we're looking at a passage that's going to help us understand wisdom and religion. Um, This could not be more applicable in our pluralistic, multicultural society as it's claimed to be. And so we as Christians need to be able to think and respond to other worldviews. We need to know our own most of all, but we need to also be able to interact with people who don't share the same worldview as us. Because very often we get hard questions from people that we're speaking with about things of the Lord, and we just have no idea how to respond because we're not sure how their assumption of the world fits in with ours or how ours can answer the assumptions made by other people. So I want to ask, is it true that man can only find true happiness by giving up the illusions of religion? Was Marx right about that? Or is it the other way around, that man, in order to become truly man and women, for mankind to become true to what its real purpose is, perhaps religion is in fact necessary? Uh, Karl Marx, as you know, was uh, an economist. He had... um, He was famous for his economic theory, which is um, still vastly popular today. The Proverbs has already taught us that economic wealth doesn't actually make the man. That there may be two rich people side by side and they may share very different qualities of life because of the way they view the world. The Bible talks about how the man sets his eyes on wealth and then in a moment it grows wings and flies away. Or that great trouble befalls the wealth of the wicked. So wealth is not necessarily neutral, but when you live a life in fear of God, the Bible says that the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he does not add sorrow to it. So there's a way to be rich and happy, and there's also a way to be rich and very, very miserable. So Karl Marx is is wrong that economic differences are the only thing that make people miserable or happy. Religion is often attacked as divisive and as, as a simple means of controlling others. It may be those things at times. It may be abused and manipulated to control or to divide. But more fundamentally, religion is man searching for meaning. 
religion has a lot of definitions, and there's whole articles describing, well, how do we even define religion? Um, we, we can't necessarily even define it without destroying it. But in some way, religion is man searching for something sacred, searching for a space, a philosophy, an idea that is precious and that is sacred and that there is safety in. And very often it takes the form of the unseen or a transcendent reality or something of a higher power. Some people say that religion is not how people explain the world, but how they survive the world or cope with it. As Mark said, it's the sigh of the oppressed creature. It is the, it is the grasping of the oppressed to something that is higher than themselves. It's just a means of coping. You ever heard people say that Christianity is just a crutch? When your foot hurts, when you can't get through life, you just need a set of crutches, which uh, my brother Dave is on this morning because he took a puck in the ankle. So to, to get through life, you need help. You need something to carry you along. Is that all Christianity is, is a means of coping with the difficulties of life? If you believe that, you may even be a Christian and think, well, that's probably true. I hope to expand your view of what Christianity truly is. Just merely coping with or surviving life is a, is a naturalist way of understanding religion. People who are naturalists believe that if you make any assertion about something that is unseen, you cannot possibly prove it because only scientific observation can determine what is true, which, which, which is also an impossible worldview because you cannot scientifically prove that science is the only way to demonstrate what is true. That's a philosophical worldview. And so the naturalist is as much in a system as of faith as the spiritualist or the theist or the Christian. And so how does the Bible talk about truth? How does the Bible talk about religion? How does the Bible talk about the unseen? Well, in Proverbs, it uses what is seen to infer realities about what is unseen. The Proverbs look at what is seen. They look at humanity. They look at life. They look at interactions, relationships, money, work, laziness. And from that, they make the author makes connection to what is unseen, makes assertions about what is ultimate, about what is real. And so our text is Proverbs chapter 15. I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read the whole thing because I'm not going to comment on every verse. So I want us to be primed and washed over by the word before we um, get into its, its content and meaning. Proverbs chapter 15. It's one of my favorite um, chapters in all of scripture. And we have a piece of cardboard um, of Proverbs 15. 17, in our kitchen, it says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox with hatred with it. Proverbs 15, let's hear God's word. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are, ev are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the heart of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. 
Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. Without plans, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors there is success. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. The path of life leads upwards for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of fools, the mouth of the wicked, pour out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Let me pray before we meditate on this. Father, uh, your word is true. It is pure. It is enlightening to the eyes. So may my words um, speak what is true, and may our hearts and our reflection of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we draw near to you, asking for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text, I've divided into four um, building arguments that the author is making. Each point builds off the point before. So these are not just four isolated observations, but this is how the Christian learns to articulate our, a, a thing I like to call, I've learned from others, a worldview. A worldview is very important because sometimes people isolate their their religious belief into something very small and it doesn't really have a way of fitting in with the way they think of things overall. Like how should we vote? How should we um, take a vacation? How should, what church should we go to? Or um, how do I treat people who are unbelievers? Or what school should I go to? We have no way of applying our faith to all the broad questions of life because we've never really learned how faith in, is in fact a way of explaining everything. Sometimes we, we truncate our faith down into this little tiny object like Jesus saved me from my sins, therefore I have a clean conscience, but I have no idea how to think about the rest of the world. Well, we want to we break down that barrier. And so Proverbs chapter 15, I think, speaks very wisely to this and connects for us religious belief with living in the real world. And so the first observation that I think we can make from this text 
that the author is assuming as he preaches and as he teaches is that all of reality, and by reality, I mean everything that is visible, everything that you can access with your senses or even with your um, perceptions, every part of reality is objective. These are, I'm kind of drawing this out of the first six verses, which means that it has real meaning. It's objective, which means that our perceptions cannot change reality, okay? And I, and I have an analogy for this, and I'll repeat it at the end. It's, it's if life were like an ocean, and there are many boats on the ocean at many different points in that body of water. Now, if you've ever been out in a bay or a river or something, you know that there are um, buoys, is that what they're called, with lights on them, and they're green and red, and they tell you where to stay to walk your path. Now, the first time I ever took a boat out, it was a man's very expensive boat, and he said, don't crash it. And I took him and his son out onto this boat, and we, I really had not spent very much time driving a boat at all, and I, don't, I should never have done it, but I was careful. And his 11-year-old son seemed to know how to navigate the river, so he said, "Go to the, stay on the left of these boys and stay on the right of these ones. And if you see this color, it means this. And there's indications out there in the water where if they weren't there, all you would see is a smooth pane of water, right? You, you, you wouldn't see the hazards that are underneath. And so the warnings in Proverbs are indications of hazards that really exist in real space and time. Underneath that water that looks perfectly calm, like you could drive that Mastercraft ski boat over no problem, your hull would be destroyed by some high-lying rock that is below the surface. That's what I mean by objective is reality. Those things, although we may not see them, and that's why there are so many debates in universities and schools and between politicians and between you and your friends at the coffee house. Well, what you believe, how do you know that's true over what I believe? Because when I look out, I just see water. And can't anybody just go anywhere they want? The Bible teaches, no, there are rocks that you cannot necessarily see with your own perception. That's why there are indicators there to make sure your boat does not get washed up on shore or worse, um, shredded and water fill and sink you. The Proverbs are full of warnings for those who would not take warning, not take instruction that they will eventually die. They will eventually be lost. They will be destroyed. So all of reality is objective. Proverbs, you may notice, is highly concerned with subtle, small, unique moments in the life of men and women. You ever notice that when you read through? It's just so specific sometimes. It talks about the words you use when you're in an argument. It talks about how you make your money. It talks about how you should love your wife and how you should avoid sexual sin. It's concerned with all the tiniest details of life and makes observations about them. Not just that they're there, but the Proverbs make observation and discretion between them. Now, why would it comment and concern itself with such small things? Shouldn't we talk about the greater meaning of man? I think that's why we have, sometimes have a hard time applying the Proverbs, because we don't really understand how it fits in with the greater uh, message of scriptures. And that's because the author, when, a, when it, he says, a, a tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pour out folly. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Now, why would those little things matter about the inner spirit of man? The author is saying what he is asserting, and the, the key verse in there is verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil 
and the good. And it's because life fits together in a larger picture. There is a larger picture to this life. It's not just a series of, oh, I'm bumping through life and, oh, I got this job and, um, well, what's happening in this country has just, is just pure coincidence or it's just pure evolution or it's pure happenstance. It's, there, is a, there is a greater picture that unifies the whole picture of the world. The assertions that the Proverbs make can describe the whole world. The Proverbs don't just describe life in the church. It describes a society and a world that is either under God's covenant or in rebellion from God's covenant. That applies to every nation, every tongue, and every person and every politician on planet Earth. When you look at countries that you think, you know, where am I going to go on my next vacation? And you, you, know, you look up your list. Which countries are at the top of the list? Is it ever Syria, Iran? Even Russia, some people vacation in Russia, but that's maybe becoming increasingly unpopular. Which nations do we typically go to? Nations where we are going to find um, camaraderie with or understanding with, there's going to be some um, continuation between us and Canada. Some kind of understanding that we can trust authority. Some kind of understanding that we can trust a police force. Some kind of understanding that we know that the laws are just and right. We tend to avoid vacationing in places where we don't even trust the authorities there. Why is that? Because wisdom teaches about justice, equity, and righteousness. And so nations and people who ignore the warning of wisdom create societies that are unpleasant to the Christian mindset. And very often unpleasant to those who have no idea about Christianity. Because there's no justice. There's no way to uphold truth. And so what the Proverbs asserts is that all of reality is objective. There is one truth. There is one way. There is, there is a meaning to all of this that's happening under the surface. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Isn't that a comfort to you? God is not just you know, inside a little building called a church saying, well, I'm glad you guys are doing good, but man, is it wild out there. No, he is in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The tongue, the Proverbs use the tongue as one of the greatest identifiers between these two paths, foolishness and righteousness, that from wisdom comes knowledge, life, and truth. And from foolishness out comes wrath, anger, and pain. Now, I have to ask the philosophical question, and you may think this is so silly, but wrath, anger, and pain, are these things real? Is there a genuine difference between happiness and joy and peace and wrath? And anger and pain, yes, those are real. Those are not just from our conditioning. People will often say, well, that's only just because you grew up in Canada that you feel pain is pain and goodness is goodness. People in other nations might be to- think totally different, and that's totally fine. Those things are real. The human spirit feels real pain and real pleasure. And they are a result of the choices that man can make about reality. You can be driving your boat along and say, yeah, those boys look great. Those warnings look fine, but I just don't believe anything is really under the surface. And you can go test it out. You can go run yourself left and right. You will find out that reality is objective. And so wisdom recognizes that these observations are important. They are important to observe. This is what the author is constantly doing with his audience. He's saying, look around you. Take it in. Observe. 
See the fruit of the people who hate me. Look at the fool. See how his life goes. He doesn't get up to do harvest. He's in constant conflict with his family. He has a hard time holding a job. He has a hard time enjoying even the good things that come to him because he has no concept of who God is. He can't take joy in the greatest good. So wisdom says, look and observe and and pay attention. The world often blames God for sin. A lot of people, you ask them why they're atheists, and they say, well, because if there was a real God, there would be no sin in the world. How do we respond to that? We say, whoa, 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 whoa. It's our fault that there's sin in the world. God has given us a way to build righteousness, justice, and equity, and he did it ultimately in his son. And one day the world will be restored to perfection. Don't disbelieve God because of pain and suffering. Rather, turn to his word and believe in him and obey and walk in his ways and walk with Christ, and you will see the transforming power of his kingdom in your life and in your family and at your workplace even. We can't lay this blame of sin at God's feet. We need to call people instead to his word, which presents an observation of reality, that sin is not just God not doing something. It's the active fruit of those who choose rebellion against God. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. The house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Look around you. Take it in. See that my truth, God's truth, applies to everybody. It applies to everybody. It does not just apply to those in the church. That the realities of God's constructed world are still applicable to everybody. You don't see religions of I believe in gravity and I don't believe in gravity. Because certain things built into the laws of nature, it doesn't matter what you believe. God's laws are no less real than the reality of gravity. Cults that don't believe in gravity don't last long because the first cliff they go off to test it, they're gone. Now, spiritual reality, in God's grace, he allows people to continue on in life who disobey him. But the truth and the prophetic witness of the word says, in the end, there's destruction. There's no way to get around it. um, Reality is objective. That God sits over every activity, every place, keeping watch. He's not passive. God is not passive. He is, he is witnessing and judging. And he very often delivers retribution and pain to those who rebel. And he blesses and protects those who love him. There's a word in here that we, that we can't miss. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Prudent. Prudence is highly prized in the Proverbs. Prudence is highly prized. What does prudence mean? It means, as far as the definition I found, to govern oneself by the wise use of reason. Reason is the ability to take in lots of information and to use it wisely in order to govern your life, to make decisions for yourself. That's prudence, that you just look at the world around you. You don't bury your head in the sand and just say, I want to do what I want to do. And you make decisions based on those realities. Now, that assumes the person who is prudent is living their life as if something beyond themselves matters. Because if you believe that nothing beyond what you do for yourself matters, all you're ever going to do is do what feels the, the best, right? You're going to eat ice cream for every um, dinner because that's what tastes, that tastes better usually than broccoli. Why not just eat ice cream every single night? Why not just ignore people who ask to have hard conversations with you? Why spend any time doing any work? Just rob banks and go on vacations. 
The person who is prudent recognizes that there is a reason why I need to live a certain way and that there's something above me that is I'm going to one day be accountable for. Now, even in our society, people are prudent. People who have no fear of God, no belief in an afterlife, still obey laws. They still pay their taxes. Why? Because they fear the consequence of ignoring those laws that are above themselves, right? On a greater scale, the same is true of God. That prudence says, if I live according to what God has said, I'm going to enjoy the blessings of his kingdom, not just the blessings of you know, what the OPP enforce or what Canada enforces. That's temporary. But in God's economy, prudence says, I want to be, um, I want to be accepted in his kingdom. And so the, the person who listens to their parent is prudent. They say, I don't like this instruction. This is frustrating. Mom and dad aren't letting me do something or they're teaching me something that's hard or they're correcting some sin in me that's very unpleasant. But a prudent son says, I think there's a greater good here. I think there's a greater good here. That all ties in with the reality that life is objective. Reality is objective. There are real rocks underneath that surface. There are real things that cannot be moved by a boat traveling at a high speed. There is disaster for people who ignore the instruction of God's word. So that's one thing the, pro- the, the author of the Proverbs assumes, that, a, that reality is objective. Number two, that evil is futile while righteousness satisfies. Now, Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verses 7 to 11, the lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the heart of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable. That means that our relationship to those warnings, to those hazards, will have real consequences. If we choose rebellion against God, constantly running up against those things, we spend all our time trying to fix our boat. There is a futility, there is a Futility is the best word. There, there, is a, there is an unending conflict between those who rebel against God and God himself. Why? Because his reality is pre-constructed. It already is the way it is. And so those who rebel against him and, and dwell in wickedness, the Bible says that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. There is no acceptance between the wicked and God. God is appalled by their prayer. He's appalled by their religious devotion. And he's appalled by their thoughts. Look also in verse uh, 26. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Those who live in rebellion to God, there's nothing they can bring to God to bridge the gap. Evil and wickedness is futile. It's futile. Which means that you can say, okay, uh, reality might be objective. I'll grant you that. But... Me, as somebody who wants to stay in rebellion against God, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a way. You know, people say only God can judge me or God would understand. I'm going to live in rebellion against God, but I think he, re- I think he understands. I don't think the Bible teaches that. Evil is futile and righteousness satisfies. Even the good things that the wicked think that they have, like riches or freedom, they cannot fully enjoy because their lives are in rebellion to God. Galatians says, do not use your freedom for evil, but rather use it for good. While the wicked use temporary forms of freedom, like living in Canada, they only use it to serve themselves and to live further wickedness. Isn't that sad? 
the, the wicked cannot even enjoy the freedoms that we have in Canada. They can't even fully enjoy um, the wealth and the, and the bounty that we have in Canada. They cannot fully enjoy it because their consciences are plagued because God does not accept their sacrifice. God does not accept their prayer. There is no shortcut to God. There is no back door into his kingdom or into his temple. It's futile. Wickedness is futile. It leads to death. God is terminally distant from the wicked. There is an impasse between the wicked and God. What does it say about the righteous, though? The prayer of the upright is accepted. It's acceptable to him. He loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Now, this is not a plea for you to work harder to be accepted by God. Like, oh, I'm pretty mad. Oh, you look back on your week. I'm pretty messed up. I, I blew it. God can't accept me. I'm among the wicked that Tim's talking about. No, because we've said over and over and over again that the, the Proverbs were never fulfilled by Israel. They were never fulfilled by the sons of Solomon. Right after Solomon wrote this, the kingdom was split into two kingdoms. Israel split and eventually warred with each other. This was not faithfully followed by the sons of Solomon. It was not faithfully followed by the sons of Israel. It was not faithfully followed by the Pharisees. It's not faithfully followed by you or I. The one who faithfully followed the wisdom of the Proverbs, the true son, is Jesus Christ. He was accepted by God. He was pleasing in God's sight. The prayer of the righteous is acceptable to God. Jesus Christ alone is righteous. The uh, high priestly prayer in John 17, a lengthy prayer for those who would follow Christ. Christ went on our behalf into the throne room of God. His prayers are acceptable. And because of your belief and, and submission to Christ, you are acceptable to God. This is not a sermon of performance. It's a sermon of observation. It's a sermon of observation. So number two, evil is futile and righteousness satisfies Number three, that the difference between those two ways is, it has a value judgment on it. One way is better than the other. One way is better than the other. Verses 12 to 30. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise, meaning a person who's wicked, who doesn't want to change. They're never going to go find a wise person and say, hey, can you teach me? A fool thinks that he knows everything and has no time to be corrected. How does he go on to describe the life of that type of person? Well, the sorrow of the heart crushes the spirit while the heart of the glad makes a cheerful face. He talks about the difference on the inside for those who live in foolishness and wickedness and those who live under God. There is a cheerfulness. There is a joy that exists deep in the heart for those who love God and obey him. And yet the sorrow of the spirit crushes the wicked. There is an inward reality that is, that is there based on these decisions. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful heart has a continual feast. Better is a little bit with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. A hot-tempered man stirs up, stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. The author is pointing out the difference between these two ways. And he's saying these ways are not equal. 
One way is better. Christians, we need to be confident in this reality. We are not just among the many world religions. We do not stand side by side with other religions saying, well, let me offer a few proofs of this or that. Let me talk about the molecules present at the beginning of the universe and how the, I, I can prove to you. Come and be convinced by my argument. No. The way of the righteous is a clear highway. It's a level highway. Friends, your walk can be so much more powerful than your talk. Because all the wicked needs to do is look at the life of those who obey Christ. Look at the life of those who live under God. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Homes that are broken despite being filled with wealth, despite being filled with 4K TVs and 18 satellite dishes and three cars and private school and granite countertops, houses full of hatred and destruction. It's not better. It's not better without God. I don't care how much you can show me about your worldly view without God. You don't have a life that is in peace and in harmony, not only with God, but with those around you. Now, I'm not saying Christians live perfect lives and that there's never fights in the home of a Christian. Not saying that. Okay, we're still selfish. We're still foolish. We still have regrettable mistakes and moments. But what the Proverbs are making an observation of is that those who are without God, it's tough. It's not a happy life. There's not only problems on the inside, the crushed spirit and the afflictedness, but there's also problems on the outside. There's hatred and there's strife. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is. Okay, the dinner table is a great indication of the climate of a family. Is it tense? Is it quiet? Is it frustrated? Is it bitter around a feast? You know, like order Boston pizza in. There's like every topping pizza. There's pops. There's everything you would ever want. And yet nobody loves each other. Nobody talks to each other. And yet the, what would be better? Hey, I'd rather sit around and just nibble away at some kale and have a happy conversation with my wife and my kids. I, I do like kale. <laughs> it's not the worst thing ever. I had it in my smoothie this morning, but herbs. It's better to have little herbs and to nibble on small, humble things and to enjoy your family. That's what the Proverbs are saying. There are things that are more important in life than what the wicked would hold up and say, look, we're doing so well. Look, we have all this money. I have the promotion. I have everything I ever wanted. And yet my life is empty. Why? Because there's no God. Friends, we need to leverage the truth behind these observations. You know what can be some of the most powerful evangelism you ever do? Is to ask the simple question, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? Not in a cruel way, not in a way to rub in the difficulties of what people go through, because we need to be sympathetic, because we go through them sometimes ourselves. But God offers a solution. And very often the most loving thing we can do to somebody, for somebody who has turned away from God and who has systematically rejected him is just to say, how's that going for you? Are you, are you full of joy? Are your relationships working? Very often, that'll expose somebody to the futility of the way that they think. Oh, yeah, it stinks. It totally stinks. 
One way is better than the other. And he talks about this way. He says the foolish, um, there is great discipline for those who forsake the way. Now, the Proverbs are not the only book to talk about the way. Psalm 119.15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes upon your ways. Jesus Christ came to be the final expression of this way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There is only one way, my friends. In fact, the book of um, Acts talks about those who follow Jesus as those who follow the way. There is only one way that's good. There's only one way that leads to life, and it's in Jesus Christ, and it's in the fear of him. Our testimony to the world is that, we, yeah, there are many paths. There are many paths. That is true. But they do not all lead up the mountain. They do not all lead to the top of the mountain. Not all paths are equal. One is best by margins which we cannot comprehend. Now, again, these observations are things that are just visible. Like, oh, you think your dinner time table talk is awkward and difficult? Wait till you meet the living God. These are just observations about what is immediate. Trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Oh, you're having trouble because you evaded your taxes? You're having trouble because you cheated a customer and now you can't talk and now you're losing business? Those are trouble to be sure, but nothing compared with the trouble of meeting the living God. And so the, the Proverbs are wisely using these little moments in life to say, let these be an indication to you that what I'm saying is true, that God truly is the only way. We're reminded that the Lord watches over the path of the life and he disciplines the path of rebellion. And so these observations give us wisdom in how we speak to our friends, to plead with them, to come to the Lord. One way is better than the other. If reality is objective, then wisdom can make value judgments that are different from other things. We have the ability to say one way is better than the other. We cannot say that all religions are created equal or all religions or worldviews are equally good for humanity. They aren't. Religions that do not respect the life of the unborn are not good for humanity. Worldviews that do not respect the life of women are not good for humanity. Worldviews that do not respect fair trial and justice are not good for humanity. They're not. The Christian worldview protects the unborn, values women, and upholds justice. That's where people want to live. They want to live in Christian nations because they get what's fair. Why do people flock to Canada and the United States? Because for the most part, our justice system is based on the truth found in Scripture. That you will get a fair trial and you will not go to jail unless there are witnesses. There is a way that's better. My friends, and that's not only true in big countries, it's true in your lives. It's true in the lives of our friends around us. So number four, number three was one way is better than the other. And number four is that there is only one path. And there's only one door. It's not only that we have a good way to God. It's not only that we have a good path to walk. It's not just that we found one of the good ways. It's that there is only one way. We're going to miss some verses kind of in the middle here, but I want to direct your attention to verses 31, 32, and 33. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. He who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is, 
is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. In the world that we live in, we are born into fatal ignorance and rebellion against God. The concept of original sin, that we're all polluted by this fatal rebellion against God. Instruction and reproof is the only way we can be restored. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. Despises himself. Whoever cannot be corrected will be destroyed. And they, ultimately, it's self-hating not to receive instruction, not to receive correction. The only way any of you became a Christian is somebody confronted you with the reality that you were in rebellion against God and you believed them. And you accepted that correction. You accepted that rebuke, whether it was a preacher, an evangelist, your mom or your dad, a friend, or Christ himself. You had to be rebuked in order to come to faith in Christ. There's only one way, and it's humility. Walking in fear of the Lord and in submission to Christ is, cannot be reached in pride. It cannot be reached through pure inspiration. It cannot be reached through your own personal effort or discipline. It can be reached in one way and one way only. Humility. This is true in the Proverbs. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. There's no difference of gospel between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you were full of pride and you could not be corrected, you cannot be saved. You cannot belong to God. Adam and Eve were the first ones to run up against this problem. When Satan said, God doesn't want you to eat that because you will become like gods. The temptation was not just to test God out. The temptation was to become equal with God. And Satan said, if you eat this, God knows that you'll be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. And in that sense, he was right. We learned good and evil. But God said, that was a job for me. As Dustin just said, I wouldn't want that job. Well, we decided we wanted to figure out what that would be like, to know the difference between right and wrong. And we blew it because we dove headlong into sin. It's stated in two different ways in Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride comes before destruction. So if you're walking a life of pride, you will not be corrected. You will not be influenced by the church. You will not, be, uh, you will not heed instruction. That pride comes before destruction. It's the precursor to destruction. That's the path that you are walking. Proverbs 15 says it in the positive. Humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. The opposite of pride is humility. The opposite of destruction is honor. Man searches for significance and honor in almost infinite ways. That's not wrong. It's not wrong for humanity. We see it all the time to become excellent in technology, to become excellent in medicine, to become world leaders in diplomacy. Man is searching for excellence. Man is searching for honor and significance and skill and purpose. It's not wrong. But what we need to realize is that God created man in his own image as the pinnacle of creation. Man was God's greatest creation. Not Niagara Falls, not the Himalayas, not the Rockies, not our gorgeous earth. It was us. Man has something in him which says, I am significant. I am not an accident. 
But our worst mistake is to think that our highest significance comes through asserting ourselves over and above everything, that man is the highest. We need to realize that we were day number six on the creation scale. We were day six. We were the, we were the most important day. We were the pinnacle of creation, but we're still in the six days of creation. On day seven, God rested from his work. We are a creation of God, and humanity can only find its true meaning, its true glory, its true purpose through submitting to God. <clears throat> Jesus said to, Jesus said to um, those who challenged him, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God. This is the path to life. Truly honor God as he is for the claims that he makes. Not not in the bent ways that we want to remake him and manipulate him and say, I think God is like this and I think God would approve of this and that. And Let God be God. Let him take care of him. He's revealed himself in crystal clarity in his word. Our job is to honor him and exalt him. And in that we find our honor. In that humanity finds its meaning. In that humanity finds its significance and its greatest purpose. And we fail to pursue God. And so he pursued us. He gave us full access to himself through Jesus Christ who became the benchmark of this reality. Jesus Christ became the benchmark of this axiom that humility comes before honor. Why? Because Christ humbled himself to become a man, to wrap himself in mortal flesh, to be born to a family of sinners, Mary and Joseph, to be born into a family of sinners, to have siblings who were sinners, to love them perfectly, And then Philippians says that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But what does it say just after that in Philippians? Then, because of that, God has highly exalted him to a name that is above every name, so that one day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. His honor came after his humility. God humbled himself to show us that the way to true honor in life is through humility. If the Son of God could get there no other way, then by no means will we. Humanity finds its true honor and purpose in submission to God, in instruction, in reproof. When God puts us in our right place, we no longer fight against God. We find peace with him. So, Fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. How do we internalize this on a couple different levels? On a personal level, just you and the Lord, your individual walk with him. We need to recognize that we will not find greater joy or honor outside of a life in submission to God. There is so much temptation to do so, to run every different way and say, I, I'm going to find it this way or that way. But recognize that a life lived humbly, receiving instruction, not just from somebody who's better than you or or more mature than you. Sometimes people that you don't respect will come to you and say something so true and so painful because you know it's true. Within the family, how do we apply this as the family? Well, number one, that the truth is within our grasp to know and to teach. We do not mean to be defeatist as families in, in the Lord. Yeah, of course the world is teaching that there's no God. Of course the world is manipulating sexual identity to to become the highest definition of man. Of course the world is doing all that because they are remaking themselves to be the greatest expression of everything. The world is asserting itself above God. Of course they're doing that. 
Does that mean that we have no weapon? Does that mean that we have no recourse? Does that mean that we have no resource to combat that? Yes, we do, because the family is God's original unit. We see that a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. The whole Proverbs are in the context of the family. The family is God's natural institution for instruction, and we need to embrace that as the church and say, we are in charge of the education of our children. We will tell our children what is true and we will not apologize for it. We will instruct our children in the truth. We're increasingly coming to a place where we don't recognize what's being taught in the public sphere as true. Do we submit to that and do we just say, oh darn, the world's going the wrong way? Or do we say, no, we will take our children, we will instruct them in the truth. That's the family's job. And to the world... What do we say to the world? We don't stand as one option among many. We're not, the, the religion, the worldview is not just a giant vending machine and we're one of the buttons. We do not offer ourselves as one option among any. We offer the, our worldview as the, as the rocks underneath the surface that are really there that we need to show and warn the world about. All through high school, I made the mistake of saying, whenever I witnessed, and I, I witnessed all the time, but I used to make, I make the mistake of saying, well, this is what I believe. I would, I would precurse everything I said with, this is what I believe, non-verbally suggesting that it's just as valid if somebody believes something else. Now, that doesn't mean we need to become jerks and say, slap people around and, and ridicule them for their, for their beliefs that are not from God. But we need to stop apologizing and stop hedging our bets against the truth that God has given us. It applies to everybody on earth. Don't start your sentences with, well, well, this is what I believe because I'm a certain way. Or I grew up with it, so you know I could just as easily believe something else. It's wrong. We sell short the truth of God's word when we do that. The author in Proverbs never once says, this is the way I see things. This is what I believe, and I'm pretty sure it's good. He just says, this, these are the realities. These are the bedrock foundations of all humanity are built on these things. And for Evergreen Chapel, what's our application for us? Well, <clears throat> that learning and growing in these truths happens over the long Hall. It's not happening in one sermon or two sermons or one series. It is the gathering, the faithful assembly of God's people week after week after week after week. We grow in God's word. We submit to his word and we grow. That's what we do. That's why teaching is the primary activity that we do together. It's not because I like teaching more than music or anything else. This is the pattern of the church that we would go to God's word and we would glean from it and we would be corrected. We would go to the wise and say, correct me. Evergreen Chapel, our name contains, Wynn pointed this out to me this morning, Evergreen. Evergreen Chapel. Christmas trees are evergreen, she says. And as we drove this morning, the, the trees are covered, frozen in white. But as soon as the sun comes up, that snow melts off and the evergreens are still green. We exist in a time where the culture is not going to do us any favors in building up the church. The culture is never going to pat us on the back and say, we're so thankful for your teaching. In some ways, there is a frozen condition that, ex that we exist inside right now. Yet the promise of God's word is that his people will be evergreen. Evergreen. 